Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, introduce them to someone whose story is so powerful, it is life-changing. This is that story. April 15, 2013 is one of those days Boston will never forget. The Boston Marathon bombings are etched in our memories, not just as Bostonians, not just as Americans, but as citizens of the world. So much pain and so much loss. But that's not what this story is all about. This is the story of four people whose lives intersected when the second bomb went off in front of the Forum restaurant at the 2013 Boston Marathon finish line. It's a story about courage, resiliency, and love. In the spotlight, Roseanne Sedoya Materia, whose book, written with Jennifer Jordan, is called Perfect Strangers, Friendship, Strength, and Recovery After Boston's Worst Day. Roseanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Candy. It is so nice to have you here. And we all remember the day like it was yesterday. I had been on the air that morning at Magic 106.7. I was covering the race. And when my shift was over, I drove home in time to catch the women's and the men's winners crossing that finish line. And a couple of hours later, my daughter called me weeping, saying, Mom, you know, you got to turn on the TV. There's blood and there are bodies all over the finish line. And you were one of those people. I was. I and was. here you are today. Yes. You heard the first bomb. It detonated about a block further down Boylston Street. Then what happened? When that first one went off, the crowd went silent, which is unusual. I've been there many, many times in the past. So everybody looked to the left to see if you could figure out what had happened. Within the matter of those 10 seconds to 12 seconds, obviously, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. I decided in those moments that I was going to turn and run. And as I did, I basically ran into the second bomb. I saw it explode at my feet. There were two flashes of white light, kind of like quick fireworks. And then everything went out black. I could feel that I had been sort of blown into maybe another person and then kind of came to sitting on the sidewalk. Did you know somewhere in a very deep part of your body that something was terribly wrong at that moment? Absolutely. This is a tough question. And I really hesitated about asking this of you. But were you near little Martin Richard? Yes. I don't recall seeing him because I was so focused on looking for my friend coming down Boylston Street who was running. He was probably five or six people away. For those of you who may not know it, uh, Martin Richard, eight years old, the youngest victim of the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, he lost his life. His little sister terribly injured his mother as well. Someone appeared out of nowhere to help you, your very first guardian angel. I could not have been luckier to have this former college student, he's since graduated now, but Shores Salter come out of the cloud of smoke, so much like an angel, and told me I needed to get out of there. I hadn't seen my leg that I had to have amputated because it was tucked under me, but I knew it was bad. And I think your brain is amazing how it connects to your entire body. And it knew that it was beyond repair. But so when he told me I needed to get out of there, I just told him I couldn't. I couldn't walk. I lost my leg. And he basically scooped me up off the sidewalk and carried me to the middle of Boylston Street. It was mayhem. 
in Cottley Square. 264 people injured, three people dead. So Shores is carrying you through this chaos, and he connects with Boston police officer Shana Catone. He actually had laid me down, and two gentlemen had given Shores a belt to apply as a tourniquet onto my leg. At that point, the police cleared everybody out because they only wanted to make sure medical people were there. Shana Catone, Boston police officer, happened to come upon him holding the tourniquet and realized that he was by himself. So she stepped in and started asking me my name and who I was there with and if I was there to watch my husband and also to try to get me to safety and get me into an ambulance. A third person comes to your rescue, Boston firefighter Mike Materia. What is his engine company? He is at Ladder 15, Engine 33. Right on Boylston Street. Right on Boylston Street. And oddly enough, he was not scheduled to work that day, but he took a shift for somebody else because Marathon Monday is generally a great day, fun day, easy day to work. Boy, was he wrong on that day. What do you remember about him approaching you? There were several people around me at that point, including Shana and Shores. There were a few of the other firemen from his house that were helping straighten out my leg, get me boarded for transport. He seemed to kind of just show up on the scene as they were loading me into my transportation to the hospital. I just remember a big, hulky guy, big guy, big guy helping load me in on the backboard that they had prepared me on. He was just dressed in his full firefighter uniform. He was definitely... A soothing presence, knowing that he was in the back of my transport and he was with me being transported to the hospital. In fact, he was holding your hand through this. I made him. I won't lie. He didn't want to because obviously he knows that uh, my my right hand was burned and it was oozing and he knows that you shouldn't touch a burn (laughs) and he wasn't wearing gloves, etc. He didn't really want to hold it, but I kept hitting him in the chest (laughs) to the point that he had bruises the next day. He held it along with that, the tourniquet, and keeping me steady on the backboard so I wouldn't fly off the seat. Dr. David King at Mass General Hospital was your trauma surgeon. And in your book, Perfect Strangers, which, by the way, if you haven't read this book, you need to go out and buy it today, not just for yourself, but for your family to have. He was your trauma surgeon, and you credit him and his skill set with saving your life. Tell us all about him. I was so lucky I know it was a bad situation and probably the most unluckiest place in anybody's life to be that day. But between the people that helped me on the street and then being transported to Mass General Hospital and having Dr. David King work on me, he saw me immediately and he knew that I had been blown up by an IED. He's had such past experience with Afghanistan, Iraq. He's worked in recovery at the Haitian earthquake in Haiti. Truly amazing, amazing gentleman, and he knew what needed to be done. And I do credit the fact that he did it right the first time and that I have not had any issues from surgery since since then, thankfully. Four surgeries for you over the course of a couple of days. Yes. And you finally wake up. I had a chance to interview another trauma surgeon who was on duty that very same day at Boston Medical Center. She told me that telling someone they have lost a limb is one of the most difficult things that a doctor can tell a patient. Do you remember that moment? It is a little foggy, but I do remember it. For me, at that point, I was on a lot of morphine. That really took the edge off of what they had to tell me, so much so that I kind of made a little joke out of it. Not on purpose, but sometimes me and morphine, things come out of my mouth, and I am sort of aware of it, but not aware of it. And 
basically when he told me that he had amputated my leg, that he'd have to go back in and clean it out. He didn't know if he'd be able to keep me below the knee or above the knee, which at that point, I really didn't know the difference. I do today. It's a huge difference. But at that point, my only concern was I wanted him to make the scar when he did the the amputation to make it look like a rose. No idea why. (laughs) He looked at my mom and he said, she's going to be fine. Like, I'm sure he's never had that request before. That was the morphine talking, (laughs) I think. Yes. Right, Right, Roseanne. While you are experiencing the loss of your leg and this tragedy in your life, there is a certain college student who can't stop thinking about you. Shores Salter, who we just talked about as your first guardian angel. He hasn't even told his family that he carried you out of this carnage, and he's determined to find you, and he does. Yes. Tell us about your meeting, finally. It was just, I'm going to get a little emotional. I don't always. And, um, but it was one of those things that was just so surreal. Mike and Shana had come to the hospital. They knew that they had brought me to Mass General. They were able to find me, but Shores wasn't able to. And he passed you off to them, probably. Yes. Right? Thinking, yes. okay, I'm a passerby. I'm not medically trained. Here's a firefighter. Here's a cop. Okay, my work is done here. Absolutely. And Mike even asked him when they had loaded me, do you need any help? And Mike said, no, we're good. Mike didn't know he was a college student. And thankfully, he had a little liquid courage in him to come into the scene. Meeting him was just so emotional. And all I could do was thank him. He really, truly is a lifesaver. He helped hold the tourniquet. He applied pressure to where the tourniquet was, helped stop me bleeding out. If I probably sat on the sidewalk five more minutes before getting that tourniquet, I probably would have died. My blood level was so low. You know, your book really outlines beautifully what his life was like in the days following the bombings. This is a kid who was pretty shell-shocked. He came back to his apartment soaked in blood. He didn't talk to anybody for days. His parents were really concerned about him. And all he could think about was, did you live? Yes. Where were you and how could he see you? His mom, when they came to visit, thanked me for saving him. I was so confused. I'm like, I don't know what you mean. She said he was in such a fog from what he experienced that when we connected via telephone, that fog was lifted. And he was able to really share the full intense story of how he found me and carried me and held the tourniquet and just the craziness of that day. All the bad that he saw. I mean, it was awful. How were your parents through this whole thing? Let's talk a little bit about your your family. I know one of your best friends is in our studio with us today. Yes. My family has been amazing. My parents have been divorced since I was 17. Their relationship's been a long story. They were both there and able to provide such support. My dad, who is always even keel, very good at analyzing and making decisions and thought process. My mom, on the other hand, can be a little erratic and crazy. I will tell you. (laughs) Is that where your chutzpah comes from? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think that as an apple, I rolled down the hill, but I think that that came with me a little bit. And I do thank both of them for how they taught me to be so independent and how to be so strong. I don't know that I would be where I am today if I didn't have those qualities from both of them. You come from a little town called Drakeit, which is north of Boston. And I'm going to guess that news traveled pretty fast through your community. You were probably deluged with flowers and emails and visitors and support and phone calls. You're shaking your head. Yes, Yes. it was amazing. My mom, who, again, is a force, 
She told the IC unit that anybody and everybody who came to visit was going to be allowed in. And there was a line of people. They said they had never seen so many people come and go, come and go. It was truly amazing. I had so much support from so many people from elementary school friends that I hadn't talked to in, I'm not going to say a number, a very, very, very long time. And it's been great to reconnect with some people that you've lost touch with over the course of time. Coverage of the bombings and the days that followed the bombings was nonstop. Was there a moment when you realized that you were part of this terror attack? Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of Tech Help Boston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore. And we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com. I didn't watch TV for the first couple of weeks after everything happened. And quite honestly, when uh, Shana Catone, the police officer, came in at one point on the Thursday that Boston was shut down, I had no idea what was going on. I don't even remember if anybody ever told me that I was blown up. Like, I don't recall that someone specifically said that. I knew I had been involved in an incident, and I knew it was traumatic, but again, I had no idea. It took really some time, and it was the point that I was had gone back to work six months after everything, speaking to a former coworker at this point, and he said to me, he goes, do you realize that you're part of history? And I was taken back by that. I had never thought of it in that context yeah. When he said that, I thought it would be really important to do this book because I want to make sure that our story and the bond that I had with them, three of my first responders, it was what we remember, not from the newspaper, not from other reporters, not from hearsay, that we had our actual information put down on paper, how we recall and how we remember what happened. But I'm shocked that I'm part of history. It's just really surreal and bizarre. The book is called Perfect Strangers, Friendship, Strength, and Recovery After Boston's Worst Day. Roseanne Sedoya, written with Jennifer Jordan. Shana comes to visit you, and then there's this firefighter, Mike Materia, who just keeps on showing up. And your mother is making him chicken parm before you know it. She was pretty <laughs> smitten with him, I think, even before you were. Absolutely. You fell in love with this guy. When I was in ICU, still at Mass General, which I had been there for seven days, I would say probably day four or day five, she was, Roseanne, he's so cute. <laughs> and my response was, Mom, I was just blown up. Can we let it rest? Can we move on? <laughs> yeah, let it rest. You know, I, I, it's really not on my top of my priority list right now. You were in the hospital for a week, and then you moved to Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, a world-famous place. In your book, you say, no one at Spalding pitied me. I was just a patient. Tell me about that experience and the mindset that they had to put you in. My biggest fear is that people will pity me because I don't have my leg. Being at Spalding, it's something that they see all the time, and they just know how to deal with such trauma. And it made me feel like a normal person. It made me feel that I didn't lose my leg. 
and that they were there to help me get back to a quote unquote normal life. I will say that the therapists that I had, the doctor that I had, even the president of Spalding have become long life friends for me now and are part of my life. I stay in touch on a regular basis. They probably want to get rid of me, but they never will be able to. I actually tried to move in there, especially the new one. You know, they truly do make a difference in your life and they are special people. In your book, you describe hating your wheelchair. Quote, for me, a wheelchair symbolized permanency and immobility and I hated it. And you made a decision you were not going to sit in that wheelchair for long. Exactly. Or at all. <laughs> yes, I, I don't have a wheelchair at home. Sometimes I think back about it and I think maybe I should. Because I do know a few other survivors do use a wheelchair, not all the time, but it's convenient to have. I still use my crutches, which it still just makes me feel as though nothing really ever happened that day. And it's not that if I see someone in a wheelchair, I look at them differently because I completely get it. And I understand that in some instances, that's the only mode of transportation or getting around that they can have. I, I truly understand their scenario, but I just want to make sure that I could stay as independent as possible. And I know it, there's a lot of challenges with wheelchairs. How much does simply being stubborn and determined have to do with recovering? 100% of it. What are the key ingredients to taking that very first step literally and getting yourself back into the real world? It was important for me to stay focused on how I was before and knowing that I had a good life in the past, that I wanted to do anything and everything I could to get back into that scenario. I knew that if I wanted that, I would have to deal with the physical therapy, get the right prosthetic, and just keep working at it. It is a day-to-day. -day. Even today, five years later, it is a day-to-day -day situation that I have to stay focused on being mobile to keep moving. At one point, Mike gave you his army helmet. Yes. Tell me that story. He was so sweet. That's one of the things that I love about him is that he is just so thoughtful and surprising. He came into Spalding with a bag and he took out this helmet and he said, anytime that you ever feel scared or threatened or worried, he's like, put this on. And he takes it out of the bag. He'll kill me for sharing the story, even though it is in the book. He decorated it with little things that he got at Michael's craft store. And there were flip-flops. I can just see him at Michael's right now. Oh, my God. It was so cute. It was like beach-related and sun and fun related. All your favorite things. All Yes. Symbolizing flip-flops and fun and beach and sun and warmth. And, and I still have it to this day. Good thing we're married now because I'm not sure he was ever going to get it back. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I proudly have it displayed in my apartment. You know, falling in love requires an act of faith. What is it about Mike that made you believe, I can love this guy? His thoughtfulness and just how he is such a solid, caring person. And also what he does. I mean, it takes a special person to be a firefighter. He is such a caring person. He always wants everything to be okay with you. There is never a day that he ne doesn't ask, are you okay? Is everything good? He wants to make sure. And, and he's just such a gentleman. He's such a nice guy. I'm sitting here looking at your beautiful engagement ring and, and your wedding He did a wedding great job, ring. didn't he? did he? a really good job. All on his own. You got married a year ago. Congratulations. Thank you. What was your day like? Phenomenal. It was the best day. It was filled with family and friends. 
We had everybody there that we love and would want to share in the love that we have for each other and the love of life. You know, we both realize I'm lucky to be alive. And he did three tours in Iraq. He's an army veteran. He's lucky to be alive. We really wanted to share that. And it was just amazing. It was the the sun was out. It was not too hot, not too cold. It was a beautiful setting. All our favorite people were there. It was just an amazing time. Including Shana Catone and Shores Salter were both guests on your wedding day. Absolutely. The four of you have created a pact, a connection, a friendship that really is unbreakable. And of course, in the case of Mike, it's created a lifelong promise to love one another. Have you created a little bit of a family between the four of you somehow? Yes, we are like siblings, I would like to say. Although I am old enough to be Shores's mom, we all love hanging out with each other and seeing each other and it's just, it just puts a smile on your face. Did you go to the trial? I not only went, I had to testify. Can you talk about that? Sure. Early on, I think it was probably within a year or so of the bombing that each one of us survivors were brought in to speak with the prosecuting attorney and the DA, asking us what we thought of the death penalty and if we would testify. At that point, I said, no, I wanted nothing to do with it. I was fearful of all of the people out in the world that would retaliate if I said anything negative about him, not knowing who else could have maybe been involved with the planning of this. And I just had been so public that I was fearful of living on my own at the time and someone finding me. Fast forward to a few months before the trial was supposed to begin, they reached out again and asked. And at that point, I had changed my mind because I felt as though that if for whatever crazy reason in this crazy world he were ever to get off, whether it was a mistrial or something along those lines, and I hadn't done my job to tell my side of the story to help put him away, I would not have been able to live with myself. I would have felt so guilty. I made the decision that if I were asked and if they needed to me, I would definitely testify. We're talking about Johar Sarnayev and his trial for the murder of three people, disabling and injuring 264 others, crimes against the United States of America. Are you angry? Anger is such a strong emotion and exhausting emotion that I just have really found not to focus on that. I have so many other things that I need to focus on that I'd like to do it in a positive way rather than be angry and negative. Speaking of doing things in a positive way, you have your own organization now. What's it called? I started Robo Strong really to help me infiltrate kind of the motivational speaking aspect of things. Different occasions when I've done interviews and a few minor speeches here and there early on, people were like, you should tell your story. And after I would tell my story, so many people would come up and thank me for sharing or thank me for being strong. It gave them the will to be strong. So I felt as though that I really needed to take that and run with it. And in doing that, several survivors afterwards have started their own foundations. I didn't want to be another person pulling from the pool of people that we all know that want to help the survivors. I decided what I would do is really try to be a cheerleader for the other organizations that either were created after the fact or that really stepped up in the beginning to help. The Challenge Athletes Foundation, they came out immediately to support us. Disabled Sports USA and also the Semper Fi American Fund, they were all there where they had amputees come and meet with us and tell us that we were going to be okay, which was not just important for me, but really for my family. My parents, I mean, will she be able to work again? If she can't work, will she be able to live on her own? Like, how was this all going to work? And these people really stepped up. It's important for me to support them now and forever. 
It's important for me to support the charities that have started since then. Heather Abbott Foundation, who also lost her leg that day, the Norton Brothers, MR8, Martin Richards Foundation. Jeff Bowman. Jeff Bowman. And I find that we all do better when we're there to support each other. And I've learned that I was so independent before that I've had to kind of step back with that and accept help. And one thing I want to do is also to be able to help others myself. You know, I've seen some of the news clippings of you visiting amputees at Spalding, going back to Spalding. Yes. And standing in a room with a young woman who's walking those first steps that you took a few years ago. There's no amputees for dummy book out there. (laughs) You have to kind of figure it out on your own or rely on someone who's gone through it. Again, I had all those amazing people help me, and all I want to do is pay it forward. It really is such a personal satisfaction, and I I know the ease that these people feel after it happens. One person I went to visit, it was last winter, I had skinny jeans and boots on, and her reaction was, oh my God, I can wear skinny jeans and boots again, because she didn't know. It sounds so simple, but to give her that feeling of relief was just to see it on her face was just truly amazing. As you look back on those last five years, can you tell me what is courage? I think courage is getting up every day and facing the world. And some days you have it and some days you don't. My days are different all the time, but I think courage is just really facing things and and trying to make the best out of it as much as you can. You know, one of the questions I ask every woman who sits where you are today is, Obstacles can be hard for all of us to overcome. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it, Roseanne? I try to face it head on. I've always been a realist. Things aren't going to get better. There's no easy way around. Life is not easy. It wasn't easy before. It certainly has its more challenges now. In my mind, though, I need to face it forward and just figure out how to deal with it. And I think that's what I've done since day one. What is your message to the world about terror, about hurting one another? You know, I think of that picture that Martin Richard had drawn in school, no more hurting each other. It's it's not it's a, a heartbreak, isn't it? It's a heartbreak and there's no real simple answer to it. It's not ever going to go away, unfortunately. The best we can do is just be vigilant and help those that end up being in situations that I was in, which unfortunately I think will will happen. As you look back on this life-changing event, obviously an experience that could have killed you, there must have been someone in your life when you were a little girl who taught you about courage, about getting back up when you fall down again, (laughs) about putting one foot in front of the other until you get to where you want to be. Maybe that was more than one person. I think it was really both of my parents. When I was young, we had to do chores. I have no brothers as siblings. I have one sister. With our father, we would have to shovel the driveway when it snowed out or mow the lawn. Yes, it was a ride-on lawnmower, (laughs) but even still, you know... But there's a lot of snow in Drake at Massachusetts. Yes, winters can be tough. (laughs) Um, We had to stack wood when my dad would chop it because we used a wood-burning stove at different times. These are things that he did to help better us as a person to make us strong. I will tell him when he would say that it would build character, and I told him (laughs) I had enough character. At that young age, I do believe that that helped really pull me through everything. It it really turned me into an independent person and into a fighter. There was a scene after Jokar Sarnayev was taken out of the boat in Watertown. All of the police officers were leaving that area and heading back into Boston. 
And people came out of their houses. Some of them blessed themselves as the police and the firefighters and the ambulances all went by. And some just waved, hey, you know, good work. I hope you know, as you were laying in your hospital bed, that there were thousands and thousands of people who were praying for you. You could feel it. Not just in Massachusetts, not in just in New England, not across the United States, the whole entire world. You could feel it. What does success mean to you at this very moment in your life, Roseanne? Success means to me just being happy. I think that if you're happy, you're successful. And that doesn't mean that you have to have money to be happy. It doesn't mean that you have to have a family to be happy. Just if you can stay positive and be happy, I think that's success. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. The book is called Perfect Strangers, Friendship, Strength, and Recovery After Boston's Worst Day. Thank you for being on the story behind her success, Roseanne Sedoya, newly married. Thank you so much. Thank you, Candy. I appreciate being here today. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?